Well, good morning. As Bill said, my name is Nate. I'm one of the staff elders here at the church. If you have your Bible, uh, and I hope you do bring your Bibles on Sunday mornings, if you have it, we're in the Gospel of Luke, so turn with me to Luke chapter 1. It is good to gather together to lift our voices and sing praise to Jesus. It is good to gather together, open his word, and have it do its work in us. And so I pray that God's word does that work in us today as we look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Now, as we continue through this series of Luke, which we will be in for a very long time, Lord willing, it's good to keep in mind that Luke begins his gospel account with a strong thesis statement, the point to his work. He says, in, in his introduction, he acknowledges other gospel accounts in circulation, and then he lays out his purpose. In verse four, he says, my purpose for writing this is that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Confident knowledge of the facts gathered through careful, thorough investigation. It seems that Luke's intent is to provide his audience, namely Theophilus, but subsequent readers as well, like you and I, with an investigative account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Accurate knowledge, though, does not in itself produce belief, faith, and regeneration. This is a work of God's spirit. But an accurate understanding of the gospel is necessary and a good reminder for us today that when we present the gospel to others, we too must provide an accurate account. Thankfully, though, this does not mean an exhaustive account of all things theological, but an accurate account of the gospel, like Luke endeavors to do here which is why I want to take a moment just to encourage you to consider participating in a class that's happening in the new year called Two Ways to Live. It's beginning in January. And if one reservation that you face for sharing your faith is not knowing what to say, this class may be a helpful tool for, for getting beyond such hindrances. So I would encourage you to consider that. Also, something to keep in mind as we, can, as we continue through Luke is that Luke is a narrative. It is a true account of historical events with a theological objective. It's not just history for the sake of, of informing. It is history with a theological purpose, teaching who God is and what God has done in Christ. So we've looked a couple uh, sermons on the historical setting, the setting of what Luke uh, went through interviewing people. And so we need to remember also that God's people, are, they're, they're groaning under the weight of tyranny once again. This is a common theme, a consistent narrative within Scripture, God's people under bondage awaiting deliverance. You can find that Old Testament, New Testament, it's there. And is that not also the predicament of many in our day? The Apostle Paul would write it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. says that we're dead in our trespasses. We're slaves to sin. And it begs the question, what is to be done? Both Wednesday uh, men's Bible studies in the morning and the evening that will not be meeting this, this Wednesday, but we're currently studying the book of Exodus, another biblical account of God's people bound under an unbearable weight. They are seen by the Lord who then makes himself personally known. He says, I am Yahweh. 
I am who I am. He gives his name to this people. He makes them a people, but he does not just give his name to Moses or to the Israelites. He also makes his name known to his enemies, to Pharaoh, and to the watching world represented by the Egyptians. Exodus displays the length at which God will go to reveal his sovereign rule over creation and over all the kingdoms and activities of men. But the Exodus announcement from Moses to Pharaoh of let my people go, it pales in comparison to the announcement that we will look at today in Luke chapter one. In our text today, we see the most significant divine announcement given to to humanity. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is an English version of a Hebrew word, Greek, and then into Hebrew, but the Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. Let that sink in. Yahweh saves. What we observe throughout the redemption or the redemptive arc of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the faithfulness of God to keep his word. And so I hope what we'll see in in these 12 verses today is that God will fulfill his word according to his design, to his timeline, and through his means, which gives us hope and confidence, particularly when the way God works is different from what we had thought, planned, or expected. So would you read with me our text? We'll read verses 26 through 38 in Luke chapter 1. This morning, Luke writes, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. May it do its work in us today. So Luke, right up front in our text today, connects Mary's experience with that of Zechariah and Elizabeth from the preceding verses. We see that right away because Luke says in the sixth month. In the sixth month of what? of what just we just read about, of Elizabeth being pregnant. And so Luke is making a literary connection here between what happened with Zechariah and Elizabeth and what's happening here with Mary. He wants his readers to see these connect, the connection between the two and to compare and to contrast. 
And so we see this is the sixth month, which is implied of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He makes it more explicit in verse 36, where he says she's six, six months pregnant. Uh, the angel announces that. If you, if you are wondering also who is sovereignly orchestrating these events, the angel makes it clear, God is. Angel Gabriel is sent from God And so we see the circumstances around six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel of the Lord that appeared to Zechariah, the same one is sent by God to Mary. And Luke says, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Nazareth. So obscure that Luke had to add a qualifier for his readers because they wouldn't know what Nazareth was or where Nazareth was. So he he says, in the Galilean, the northern region of Israel, See, unfortunately, there's no Greek word for, uh, you know, hardly a village or basically just a few huts, but that's what Nazareth was. Historically, they say there was probably less than 500 people that lived in Nazareth. It was really, really small, very insignificant, held no political power. So Luke says, you know, it's in the northern region of Israel, it's in the Galilean region, and he basically, what he does here in this introductory sentence is introduces an obscure girl of no political importance from a very small village in the hills of Galilee, which in itself was very insignificant. So we contrast that with what we just saw in the experience with Zechariah. Zechariah was an Israelite from a priestly lineage, highly educated, the, 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 the Jewish education system was centered around the Torah, the Old Testament. Zechariah likely had every single word of the Old Testament memorized. That, he, was, he was the elite serving in the, in the priesthood. So we contrast him. We see that he, uh, he knew Hebrew scriptures. He knew traditions. He was serving in the religious center of the world for the Jewish nation, the temple in Jerusalem. And this is the irony that Luke is laying on really thick right here, right? As he contrasts Zechariah and Mary, and he says, Zechariah, who would have had all of these verses at his disposal, who is serving in the temple, if anyone would have recognized what God was up to, it would have been that dude. Luke is applying irony, as I said. In fact, he's laying the irony on very thick. Because as we saw last week, the angelic encounter between Zechariah and Gabriel, it resulted in what? Belief? Acceptance? No, it resulted in Zechariah's unbelief. He did not believe. The one who would have had all the texts about Abraham and Sarah conceiving in their old age, like Genesis 18, memorized, had stories like Elkanah and Hannah, also barren, becoming the mother of Israel's esteemed judge Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1, or Judges chapter 13, Manoah and his unfortunately unnamed wife, who were also barren, who also had an angel show up to them and tell them they were going to have it. Zechariah would have had all these texts at his disposal. He should, those things should have informed his response, but they did not. Instead, Zechariah did not believe the word of the Lord and was rebuked. In contrasting these two accounts, we see Luke's emphasis that the one who, in the world's perspective, 
was deserving honor and naturally conditioned to rightly respond, responded in unbelief, focused entirely on the natural state of things. That was Zechariah's response, right? Like, <laughs> how's this possible? My, my wife and I are way too old to be having kids, buddy. Like, no, he should have known this is not impossible to the Lord. But then we contrast that with Mary. And we look at what the, the angel, the interaction, we'll look systematically at the interaction of Mary and, and Gabriel. So begin here in verse 28 and 29. We see that Gabriel was sent to Mary. He appears and says, greetings, O favored one. Now, this phrase is very unique. It's only found here in scripture and this favored one. And then it's also used, Paul uses it in Ephesians chapter one, verse six, where it's translated as glorious grace. <clears throat> Unfortunately, there's been some confusion on this saying. If you come from a Catholic tradition at all, you may have heard the saying, hail Mary full of grace, is a common saying in the Catholic tradition. It is a misunderstanding of the original language. The use of grace is correct, but the source of grace is where the misinterpretation lies. It is not that Mary was full of grace within herself, that she was the source of grace given out to the world, but it, it was more so this greeting was that she was the recipient of great grace from God. Greetings, favored one. The angel is acknowledging Mary as the recipient of God's unique favor. God's unmerited, glorious grace. And then he says, the Lord is with you. Now, there's a measure of tenderness here. God is with you, given to Mary for assurance. But as we are, if you're familiar with Luke's account, we'll know that this, the Lord is with you, Mary will soon in the next chapter become God with us, with mankind. But there's a tenderness here that's quickly followed by a command because God is with you, Mary. Do not be afraid. But Luke tells his writers that Mary is extremely perplexed. Now, Zechariah, when he had this interaction with Gabriel as well, he was perplexed. The Greek word used there, terazzo, is found 17 times in the New Testament, and it's found over 1,100 times in the Old Testament. It's translated as trouble. It's a common response when something you don't understand is happening. Uh, and understandably so in Zechariah's case, here he is serving alone in the temple and suddenly an angel appears, probably somewhat alarming. But for Mary, it was intensified. Luke writes that she was not only terazzo, uh, uh, perplexed, but she was very perplexed, dia terazzo. This is the only time this word is used, this Greek word is used here for Mary's response. So what caused Mary such deep alarm? On the surface, the fact that wherever she was, she was alone and an unknown man appears and greets her, which was culturally not done. Without no, previously knowing, a man would not address a woman in that culture without having some previous established relationship. So that would have been alarming. Um, the fact that 
I don't know if she recognized that he was an angel or not, but the fact that he even addressed her was alarming. And one can recognize a potential sense of vulnerability, which Mary would have experienced, contributing to Mary's alarm and even to her response of fear. But Luke wants to clarify. It wasn't the outward circumstances alone that caused such alarm for Mary. What deeply troubled Mary was not the presence of the angel, but what he said. Favored one, the Lord is with you, recipient of God's incredible grace. Mary had never been addressed likely in in such a way. And Luke is very clear in verse 29 that she is greatly perplexed at what he said. What Luke is emphasizing here is Mary's humble state. Whereas Zechariah was alarmed by an angelic visit due to the surrounding circumstances, Mary was deeply troubled by how Gabriel addressed her. There was a genuine humility found in Mary, an understanding that she was unlike that she was unlikely someone to be addressed in this way, let alone someone God would involve in the grand story of redemption. Mary was unassuming. Mary did not put on airs or think too highly of herself. She had an accurate view of herself and a lofty view of God, and Luke is emphasizing this. The one who should have recognized what God was doing was bound up in the natural circumstances. But this Unknown girl from an unknown village, hardly a village, in this region of Israel, God chooses to work his amazing grace through her, and her response is, who am I? What we see here is God will fulfill his word according to his design, at his timeline, and through his means. And as I said earlier, this gives us hope and confidence, particularly when the way God works is drastically different from what we had thought, planned, or expected. This is a common theme in scripture. Lots of people had a lot of expectations. Even as Jesus, we continue to go through Matthew, we'll see Jesus did not meet human expectations because they were not accurate expectations. Let's keep moving on. Verses 30 through 33, we see the divine announcement, the message that Gabriel was sent to deliver. And so in 30, verse 30, we see, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, a comforting command for Mary, for you have found favor with God. You've been given God's grace. God has placed unmerited favor on you. He says, you will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus, it's a translation of Jesus, the Greek word Hebrew, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. And the angel says, his name will be great. He will be the son of the most high. This appears twice in our text. Now, the most high is a title that is applied to God alone. Cool things happening there. He will sit on David's throne. Promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7, a prophecy given to David about this heir that would come, his kingdom that would be established. Now, these are applied to Jesus. 
He would be of David's line. He would be son of the most high. He would be over God's people and his kingdom would be an everlasting kingdom. This is great news. The declaration as apostle John would describe in this way when he says, his introduction is, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping down to verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father full of grace and truth. In this announcement, as Gabriel shows up unexpectedly in a small village in the middle of nowhere to a woman of, of, of no consequence, no political power or authority, no influence. And he says, Mary, this is what God is doing. He says, you will bear a son. And this won't just be any son. It will be the son, the one you have been waiting for, for generations, longing for, to set wrong, all the wrongs, all the way back from the garden. He will set them right. Jesus is truly and fully God. Jesus is truly and fully man. Jesus is the only way of salvation. It is in his name. Yahweh saves. How does he save Jesus? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so as we see Mary responding to this message, we are also confronted with how have you responded to the claims about Jesus? I don't care if you've been to church since before you could walk. Being in church doesn't save you as G.K. Chesterton points out, being to church doesn't make you a Christian even not as much as, or even as much as being in a garage makes you a car. How have you responded to Jesus? The right response, the scripture tells us, is by repentance, in repentance and faith. Recognizing that Jesus came to save sinners. All of us, scripture says, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ alone is our savior. That announcement alone causes us, confronts us, causes us to reflect on our need for a savior. But the beauty of the gospel, what Christ came to accomplish is to make a way of salvation when there was none, that we can respond to the work of God in Christ with repentance and faith. And I would encourage you, if you have not done so, I encourage you to respond to Christ today. Place your trust in Christ alone. Luke is intentional here. Mary's trust was in the Lord, understanding him to be good. Understanding God to be faithful, faithful to fulfill his word according to his design, according to his timeline and through his means. 
And so the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she will have a son. And then Mary asks in verses 34 through 38, Mary asks a very logical question, similar actually to Zechariah's question, namely, how is this humanly possible? Mary says, I am a virgin. In Greek, that, the literal translation of that is, I have not known a man, implying in the way that normally leads to conceiving, like I've not known that. How is this possible? Very good question. And the conclusion is, it's not humanly possible. Like God has designed things to work a certain way, and then this is not, like, this is not humanly possible. And the angel's like, you're getting it, Mary. If the question is similar to Zechariah's, why was Gabriel's response so different? If Luke is pushing us to contrast these two scenarios, and, and, and we look at Zechariah's question, and we look at Mary's question, and we go, well, they're both kind of looking at natural circumstances and saying, how is this possible? It's not possible. There must have been a reason beyond what we're given for the angel's response. We know that scripture tells us the Lord sees the heart, sees our motives. And so we look at what Luke reveals in this and that Zechariah's question led to unbelief. Therefore, we can conclude it was rooted in unbelief. Whereas Mary's question didn't seem to affect her faith in God's doing, even when she didn't understand it or how it was naturally possible. She still had faith that God is who God is says he is. If God says it's going to happen, I don't know how it's going to happen, but there was a faith there. And this is precisely what Gabriel points out. The work will not be through natural means, but it will be through supernatural means. Mary's question does not seem to flow from her unbelief or her inability to see beyond her natural circumstances, as it seems to be for Zechariah. We see this in Gabriel's response to Mary compared to the response to Zechariah. The angel in verse 35 explains what is to happen. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. There's some interesting things happening in the language here that would have been picked up by even the most common of Jews. And this word used, uh, overshadow, it, was, it, was, it would have evoked remembering the Exodus and other points of Israel's history where God's presence was manifested, manifested in a cloud which led the people and eventually overshadowed the tabernacle. One Theologian writes it this way. He says, quote, the divine cloud that established God's presence in a place. We see that in Exodus 40 in the tabernacle. We see it in 1 Kings chapter eight in Solomon's temple. But he says, the divine cloud that established God's presence in a place now does so in a person. The divine overshadowing of the earthly tabernacle was a foreshadowing of the living tabernacle the incarnation. The divine cloud that guided the Israelites in the wilderness and infused the tabernacle at Sinai completes the drama of salvation by infusing Mary's womb with Jesus, the Son of God. And through Jesus, 
the apostolic community of faith. Solomon's temple was the first and only temple filled by the cloud. All subsequent temples were void of the cloud. And so there was this angst in God's people, like God's presence, where is it? We hear of accounts of the tabernacle of God's presence. And if you read the end of the, the chapter of Exodus, end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, like there's this amazing moment where God's presence fills the tabernacle. And you think like, this is God's people. They've been given God's law. They've been shown how to live. Here's God's leader, Moses. Like he's gonna go in and have a party with God and it's gonna be amazing. And Moses at the end of Exodus goes to the door of the, temp of the tabernacle and is barred from entering. Well, there's a couple sermons right there uh, that's beautiful. But if you wanna find that out, Wednesday morning, Wednesday evening, you can, you can dive in, guys. Sorry, girls. Uh, you can talk to Donna about adding Exodus next time. Solomon's temple, we see this, this filling of God's presence in this cloud. And so we, we see similar language that the angel gives to Mary, like God's presence, the, the, the Almighty, the Most High will overshadow you. This is God's doing. And we think, how John, like that John's introduction, how I read that earlier, John's understanding of this is Jesus, the word made flesh, came and built his tent. He tabernacled among us. Similar language. And it's, it's referring back to what God did and it's pulling forward and saying, see this, that tent, it wasn't about the tent in the wilderness. It was about Jesus, what God was doing here. I mean, whoa. Uh, it just, just imagine this for a moment. You're just living your life every day in a small village. Like, nobody cares about Nazareth. There's no one trying to conquer it. Like, nobody knows what's happening there. There's no Nazareth Gazette. Like, it's just life in rural, like, backwoods, just this small place. And... God's messenger shows up and says, guess what? You're going to be part of God's plan. You're going to be part of the story of redemption that Israel has been waiting for generations to see come about. Unassuming Mary from the obscure, hardly a village Nazareth, in her womb will be the living tabernacle, God's present dwelling presence dwelling among mankind. The angel says, for this reason, the holy child will be called the son of God. What reason? That precisely this is God's doing. This is not man's doing. It is not made through the, the normal avenues of human working. This is God's doing. It is his design. This is his timeline. And he is using his means. Luke is intentional in his contrast with Zechariah and Mary. And he wants us to see that God will fulfill his word according to his design, how he sees fit, according to his timeline and through his means. Like many her age, Mary probably had plans and dreams of what her future would look like. Likely dreaming about her future with Joseph Yet in this instant, that all changed. Sometimes we don't feel the weight of what 
is being communicated in this message to Mary. In an instant, her entire future dramatically changed. How do you respond when your plans change instantly from this direction to (laughs) somewhere over there? Mary's response, humility. Who am I to tell the Lord what he ought to do? One theologian said, the unexpectedness of God's choosing one so unlikely and unimportant is confounding and perplexing. It is not something Mary finds assuring. Only in wrestling with the word may Mary become a servant of the word. As Luke began in his initial gospel account, these are witnesses and servants of the word. She submits herself to the word of the Lord. Luke declares these ministers and servants of the word are those who see themselves rightly, not over inflating their importance. But Mary, like others we'll see as we continue through Luke's gospel, responding by declaring, I am God's slave. It is that strong. We like to soften a little bit and say it's servant. No, it is. I am the slave of the Lord He is my master. I will do what he commands me to do. Is that your disposition? Is that mine? We live in a world that loves to inflate our self-importance and exaggerate our egos. The world commonly and often promotes boast in your accomplishments. Tell others the things that you have done because really it's all about you anyway. That is the the cultural narrative of the, the culture we live in. But these are lies. They become the mainstream narrative in the modern Western world. This way of thinking was completely foreign to Mary. like a language she never learned. Now, I imagine that she was conflicted with the same inward bent as every fallen human, but she resisted this temptation towards self-centeredness by setting her eyes upon the Lord. She fought against her own doubts by trusting in the goodness of God, and she faced her fears with obedience to the Lord. This interruption was unplanned, And it was a massive, life-altering interruption. Mary responded with faith in God, trust in his design, in his timing, and his means. And so I encourage you, consider time in your past. Don't consider the outcome. Just consider the time in your past when your plans were greatly disrupted. Think of how you responded in that moment. You know, likely your circumstances, mine, I have a few, likely were not as dramatic as Mary's. It could have been an interruption through ordinary means. But how did you respond? Do you respond with trust in Christ? Trust with, in his sovereign goodness over your life? 
As we've seen, Mary's life was disrupted in a dramatic way. Her life literally was never the same, yet she responded with humility, a right view of herself and a right view of God. Thus, she obediently embraced the task of the Lord the Lord had given her, despite worldly consequences. You know, as we're comparing Zechariah and Elizabeth's experience, Zechariah's disobedience still led to the blessing that removed their worldly reproach. Luke tells us that. They were under a reproach. It was, it was a, a negative thing in Jewish culture to be childless. When they had a child, that perception of them, that negative perception, I mean, some even Jewish folklore is that you're under a curse if you can't have kids. It was strong. But Mary's obedience and humility led her to walk a life that poured on the reproach. Mary's humble obedience meant that she, was likely, she would likely be despised by her neighbors at the very least, possibly rejected by her family members, divorced by her fiance, which was a legal action with extreme social consequences, and possibly even charged by her leaders, which, was a, which a guilty verdict carried capital punishment. Her life was very altered by this announcement. Obedience for Mary was costly. She didn't know quite how costly, but it was going to cost. And her response, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What Mary's doing here really is echoing Christ's words that will come later in the Gospel of Luke where he will say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You see, this, this attitude, this disposition, this station of knowing, of seeing us rightly and seeing God for who he is, it produces humility in us. We see that example in Mary. We'll see it in other characters throughout the gospel narrative, but we see it ultimately given in Christ. For he is the one we follow. He is the one who we are being conformed and shaped into his image. This example is to charge us and challenge us as we, as we look at how Mary responded to what God was doing, ultimately the faithfulness of Christ. It challenges us to respond in trust and faith that God is as he says he is. He is good. He is trustworthy regardless of our outside circumstances, which may be okay, may be great, may be terrible. But that those things don't impact our trust, our faith, our, our confidence in the goodness of God, as exampled by Mary. So my prayer for you today is that may you take comfort in the goodness of God who has fulfilled and will fulfill his word, every single one.
according to his design, by his timeline and through his means. May not look like what you think it will. Oftentimes, most of the time it doesn't. And may you and I learn to trust him when things don't go as planned. May we take comfort in the truth that God is trustworthy, that he is faithful, that he is sovereign over all things, and that he is good. For he alone is God. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. And God, we confess. We live in a society that that wants to elevate self. God, we read this account of Mary and I think, oh man, I don't even know. If you disrupted my life that much, I don't even know how I would respond. Lord, I pray that you would work in us. God, our desire is not to be better versions of ourselves. Our desire is not to be more like Mary. Our desire is to look like Christ. Confident that God, you are good. And that there is no shadow of turning in you at all. That God, you are trustworthy. That when things happen in my life that I can't explain nor understand, I can still trust you. And God, that you are working. You are working to save. You are working to redeem. You are working to conform us into the image of your son. I pray, God, that you would work in us, that you would convict us, God, where we need to be convicted. God, that we would would respond with humility and repentance confession, turning to you, Jesus. God, that you would help us to find our identity in you and who you say we are, not in the things that we do, not in our our circumstances in the here and now, but we would find our identity and who you have called us to be, who you have declared us to be through your word. I pray, God, that you would work in our lives to the glory of your great name. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.